Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, sponsored by Flying Penguin Graphics, produced by Kieran Nemont, and here's your host, Curtis Brown. Hello, folks, and welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, where emerging creatives and producers can gain insight from established and respected producers about what it takes to become successful in the TV, film, or theater, or any type of industry that has a producer. I'm your host, Curtis Brown, and I am joined, always, by my friend and co-host, Kieran Nemont. Hello, Kieran. hello, hello, hello. Well, Kieran and I met on a cruise ship uh, probably four or five years ago now, and I just found out I've been pronouncing his name incorrectly, so that's been a journey. But uh, Kieran is a live sound engineer. He mixes theater, live events, as well as post-producting, editing, and mixing. He'll be doing this podcast. Him and I met when we were doing Grease. He was the A1, and he recently did some sound designing for some events with Virgin Voyages, which is so great, and I'm so lucky to have him here. And speaking of sound, actually... Um, I just finished The Mandalorian last night. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. Okay, okay. So, <laughs> so like, you know how it is. They're in, like, a galaxy far, far away. And you've seen... Have you seen Survivor? Yeah. Okay. So, you know how, like, when they get to Tribal Council, there's, like, the didgeridoos and, like, the, like, djembes and, like, all these, like, middle, <laughs> middle of the, like, forest, like sounds yeah, yeah well yeah i'm watching the mandalorian and like yoda appears and then all of a sudden i hear didgeridoos and djembes <laughs> and i'm like wait are we in a galaxy far away <laughs> like what the hell's going on here i thought it was so interesting and i'm pretty sure the guy won an emmy for it so what the hell do i know i guess um but i'm excited this is our first podcast um where we have a really special guest here today and i bring up the sound thing because music actually played such a big part in our first guest's uh, career so i wanted to kind of intro with that so i'm really excited to have our guest on i mean you already know who it is because it says it in the title i always think that's weird when podcasts do that i'm like you don't know who the guest is but you definitely clicked on it and saw her name before you got here but uh i'm really excited to have her on it's been it was a great interview we talk about the off-west ends, working with Stephen Schwartz, as well as financing, the financing of, of theater in the UK and the future of the UK and the future of her company. So here she is. And now we are joined by one of the most influential women in the UK theater industry. When you see a new British musical, this person is most likely the reason it exists. She graduated from the University of London with a degree in classical music. She's a UK producer who opened up her own company called Aria Entertainment in 2012, where she has produced over 65-plus musicals, including two West End productions. Not a big deal. Her production of Pippin, which originally debuted at the Hope Mill Theatre in Manchester, transferred off West End to the Southwark Playhouse, which was nominated for a record number of off West End awards, including Best Musical Production. She made the Stage 100 a list of the most influential people working in the British theater in 2018, 2019, and yes, you guessed it, 2020, for her work as producing artistic director of the Hope Mill Theater. Her artistic pursuits are recognized globally as she was nominated for International Producer of the Year in 2020 by the League of Professional Women in New York City. Thanks for coming. Not only does she have a list of awards and nominations that will re-aggravate your carpal tunnel syndrome from scrolling her Wikipedia page too much, but she also has a huge heart as she was one of the first people in the UK to sign up to the Lewis Thomas Mental Health Charter. She runs a full literary department at Aria Entertainment, has two productions on Broadway HD, a full-on chocolate addiction, and she may be secretly collecting your data and sending it to 23andMe with her education in genetics. Welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, Katie Lipson. I love that. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. We're selling it off. And, and you want to know, I'm a cheap. All I want is um, a meal deal for a week. That's all I want. That's like the, that's the best deal in all of the UK. I swear to God, the meal deal. Like that's oh, it. Lovely. I've literally just bought one. I'm trying no, to. No, you did not. What'd you get? What sandwich? Oh, tuna. Tuna. And I'm a tuna guy too. Tuna <laughs> sweet corn. Yeah, tuna sea corn. Haven't had time to eat it though because uh, the morning's been so busy. I can't. Well, yeah, you just opened another show in the middle of a pandemic last five years. So yeah. tell us a little bit about that. How was that? Oh, it was lovely. It was an amazing experience. You know, I feel lucky that I have that show, you know, the rights to the show everybody could put on right now. And it's not just about finding a smaller show that costs less to put on when times are hard financially, but actually there are not many shows that have the popularity in that sort of, you know, limited run as the last five years does. But at the same time, you know, the show was on in, in March and it closed due to a pandemic. So ultimately, um, I had to rebuild the show. You know, we lost everything in March, pretty much. And then we had to reopen, build the show again, 
okay, we slightly shorter rehearsal process. The set was, right. was already building to a degree, but needed a bit of like upkeep. Right. Um, here we are, you know, the running costs of the show are the same. You've got half the seats you're running, you know, but, but what an experience. And I took a leap of faith in it because I knew it was popular. And I knew if anyone was going to come out for a, a, a musical in the off West End scene, it probably would be this one. Um, and it's a full production. You know, I have huge admiration for people doing concerts and things at home and, and limited runs and sort of, but you know, this is a full musical with a band with production values. And it's, it's no different really to what it was before. It's just got half the seats in the theater and people wearing masks. So you can, can't really see what their reactions right. are. All those laps are muffled now, eh? <laughs> no, but you, you know, you know, the show is popular. So of you course. Can, you've got, you've got your, you know, you, you know that it's hopefully been well received. And that, and that production is so great because it's an actor muso one too, which I love, which is such an interesting way to do that show as well. When you do, you did, you know, I, you mentioned I do a lot, I've done a lot of shows and a lot of them have been revivals and I have chosen, I would say the less obvious revivals, even Pippin, you know, it's not done that much here or Aime, which we recently did with Tracy Bennett or even Aspects of Love, the least sort of Lloyd Webber show really sort of dark. Toxic Avenger was a premiere. Yank was a premiere. Ultimately, if I do do a show again, I don't really want to do it the same. And I, I am a pianist and I did do classical music. And I looked at that show and thought, there's got to be something in it, in, in the texture of the music to add maybe another character. Yeah, and... And as well as the music, too, because they're each telling a different side of the story, one from the start and one from the beginning, and how the music can influence that and the way that they play it is so interesting as well. Exactly, exactly. So the physical energy behind the texture on the piano. So when, you know, uh, after Still Hurting, it goes immediately into um, Chicks uh, Goddess. Chicks Goddess, yeah, yeah. Real sort of heavy texture, but for... Kathy, she, she she's in a moment of sadness and a moment of anger. So she can bring that into that right hand on the piano. And mm -hmm. it's kind of like playing with that. And so I was with the director, Jonathan O'Boyle, doing another show. Because I'm experienced on the fringe and the Southwark Playhouse had a slot at the theatre, very late in the day, he said, oh, do you have a show you'd like to sort of do in February? We've got a slot. This was in like November, December. So we're making it happen very quick. And the original idea was to have two pianos, maybe, with, and they would be like together. So like I a said, dueling pianos type yeah. thing, isn't it? That's such a cool idea as well. I said that to Jonathan, and then he was like, I love this idea about the piano, but we should have one piano and it should center point the piece. And I think that's what people have really loved because that then defines the movement and, and the nuance of, of the characters as they move right. around that set. I don't like do that with all my shows. You know, this, I don't really sit there waiting for directors to come to me with shows and pitches. I like to lead Aria like I'm a creative. Yeah. I don't take things from, I don't just focus on one show and take it to the end. That's not what, that's not the, that's not bringing out the best in me. The best in me is having five ideas with a team of brilliant creatives, planting seeds and, and allowing them to go and focus on that and only that i have an idea let's do pippin with x amount of people can you do a boutique version that's smaller and can you bring out these you know these these ideas and right. then the director will be like love that and then they'll bring something completely different not not it's not to say that i haven't done shows people have pitched or had an idea for i want to reinvent this but i have had a lot of my own ideas over the last few years um and sort of see myself like as an artistic director, really, of the company. Well, and that's going to kind of happen with you at the Holt Mill Theatre, right? Because you became a producing artistic director. And that seems like that kind of worked out really well for you, especially if you see yourself as like more of a creative producer type person that yeah. you're kind of now in charge going, wait, we can use this for this season and this is why it'll work. And that's like such a luck. That's such a nice thing to have as a producer as well, isn't yeah. it? I mean, now I have parted ways with the Hope Mill, but it was an amazing three years where we've done 13 productions pretty mm -hmm. much. Um, and the guys that ran the venue, they were very passionate and talented at certain things, but hadn't really produced, but had this passion and ambition to. And I'm from Manchester. And so there was yeah. a sort of, wow, you guys are doing in Manchester what I've been doing in London. And actually how thrilling to bring shows to the North where I'm from, you know, mm -hmm. that 
either have been done in London. For example, Parade. Absolutely desperate to put on Parade. I was with this director, James Baker, in Manchester. And we, we were thinking where to do it. And then suddenly the Hope Mill Theatre evolved. And it was, well, this is a no-brainer. Let's do it with them. Let's right. establish a venue with this show. And then it all began there, really. And they were as ambitious as I was. Gets put on musicals, as many as possible. And gosh, it was exhausting and it was hard work and we all worked ridiculously hard and for no money, um, as usual, but it was very rewarding and uh, good for us, you know? And you got to work with people that have the same ambitions as you as well, the same drive, because if you're not surrounding the same, if you're not surrounding yourself with a team that wants to work hard and wants to wake up the same way that you were just talking at the start, that it's like, well, what's the point of doing it? Because then it, the product goes half-assed and then the audience ends up going, well, what was that? The real truth is, in the UK, there really isn't a lot of, how do you put it? People are used to commercial houses where they see the tours of The Lion King and Wicked, but they don't know the Donmar Warehouse, that experience, or New York Theatre Workshop, or Second Stage, that type of intimacy where you're so close to an actor. And, you know, in London, people were used to that in places like the Southwark Playhouse, the Many A Chocolate Factory obviously was the real pioneer for another level of that reimagining musicals in a boutique way and so in Manchester was getting something and it never ever had anything like this so there was such a there was such a sort of I don't know support from the industry and from um, the community and Manchester's a great cultural hub it's a big city and it's got a lot like five or six theatres but again they get big shows they don't get uh, they wouldn't get Pippin or they wouldn't get um, Spring Awakening or Mame or, you know, Rags, you know, Stephen Schwartz coming into that theatre. I think he was writing some songs for Prince of Egypt on a honky-tonk piano in the corner when he was like, you know, literally had a break and just an honour. And someone like him just walks in that building and doesn't look any di- doesn't look any different at it than if he was sat in the Palladium. Because um, he sat there thinking, what a stunning space to recreate a show I did in the 70s with Charles Strauss and you know, Joseph Stein. And and it's just, it's quite amazing, really. So you've had like quite a unique journey from studying genetics, as I said, 23andMe, uh, at the University of College London. And then you studied music theater for a year at the London School of Music Theater. And then you went and graduated with a BA in music, um, classical music, sorry, from the University of London. What sparked the transition from like genetics to producing theater? I mean, at school, I sort of did biology and chemistry and music and drama as my sort of final studies when I was 17, 18 and that's in the UK you do that and then um, I just was kind of like I don't know um, didn't really know what I wanted really I think you're very young when you reflect back when you're in your 30s you're like whoa that was a long time ago how could I have known I did know I liked entrepreneurship I liked the idea of running a business because my dad was a self-employed like businessman and I like seeing him around all the time and his freedom but didn't really know what business I wanted to do. I loved the arts and I could sing and whatever, but I didn't quite feel like I wanted to be an actress. I didn't have that confidence. I really didn't like being on a stage. Um, And I liked science. So I thought, well, if I made my passion my job, would I lose my passion? And that was a decision I made at 17 to not pursue the arts. Um, If I was going to do something, it probably would have been a music degree straight away, not like a drama degree or anything. It probably would have been a music degree because music brought me to theatre and now I'm a much more rounded you know person as a creative I'm I am much I'm not just music driven I was very music driven in the first few years of my producing career I would choose a show based on the music or anything um so you know um I then didn't enjoy it didn't enjoy that degree in genetics but I was in London and I met a friend at university who wanted to write a musical um, and he and I met in the Amateur Dramatic Society doing cabaret and he was extremely flamboyant and, and just the most amazing person and, and, and he loved to write opera, kind of like modern opera or chamber, chamber, chamber opera. So he and I wrote together and he was like, let's put it on. And I never would have put it on probably. I would have said, you know, it's not finished or it's not good enough or... So, but he was like, let's do it. And that was it. You know, I was 19 and we hired a church hall and I got a keyboard and I taught all the singing, played the piano, marketed it. 
got the actors and I think we both put £500 in and that's what we did. And after that point, I left the degree at UCL in genetics and he left as well. We set up a company and um, and we produced kind of new writing reviews. But at the same time, I was doing the year at LSMT because I was stuck in London. And I needed something to do and I was fortunate enough to audition, get in but also got represented immediately as a musician, as a musical director, as well as a performer and an active musician, and did a few gigs and got a bit of work and went back to do the classical music degree and sort of ran this company with my friend and did all these professional engagements as an actress as a, and as a MD through my degree of classical music at Goldsmiths um, College. So by the time I was 23, I'd done five years of further education had produced 10 small type, sort of like Feinstein's 54 and Below, Pizza in the Park in London, those types of cabaret venues where people have a pizza and eat shows with my friend from uni, indeed them all, directed them, you know, produced them, um, and, was, and, and had done maybe three tours as an MD and had done lots of sort of shows and was starting to really like that side of the gig. So what happened then was um, I started to get a bit of the producer bug that was the thing that kept drawing me back you know I'm not gonna lie I didn't have a game plan I didn't know that five years later I'd do that and six years later I'd do that I just went for it I went for it I put things out there into the world and I then you know attracted other people to the shows and just constantly tried to enrich my understanding and knowledge and took baby steps you know I didn't launch into a big commercial career raising capital or working for a big producer I admired, like Sonia Freeman. Um, but I would, I would fly myself to New York and knock on the door of people like, you know, Joey Parnes and Daryl Roth and, and go, hello, maybe, maybe you'd like to know me. And people like passion and people like knowledge. People mm. like people, they like to know that you know what you're talking about and you're doing it. And yes. it does make an impact when you do a lot of shows in a short period of time, like mm-hmm. I did. And you know, please, you know, thank God got constantly good praise and people started to like my show choices and I got known for being quite bold and every now and then there was a complete new musical there or premiere from the US or, you know, it was just, it's just a really interesting growth and really three years into that, um, so I, I was teaching at that vocational school for five years right. and every year I did less and less as the company started to earn me some money and I left there probably four years ago to be full-time. So I've only really been able to take a salary and be a full-time producer four years ago. And that was really when I started raising money for my big first commercial project, which was three, four years into ARIA. Right. Um, you know, so, so I, sorry, I parted ways with my friend. We stopped that company maybe right. in like 2011. And then in 2011, I had the idea to form ARIA and. Tw- was sort of the launch of it because I'd, I'd sort of MD'd a show that inspired me so much and um, I wanted to sort of take it under my wing and develop it. That was a Christmas and, show, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, called Claus. And, well, it was called The Life and Adventure of Santa Claus. And I also went on a workshop, like, with all these West End producers. And those two things suddenly were like a wake-up call of, this is your destiny. What you said actually segues really well into my next question. At the start of college, which was almost 10 years ago, a teacher told us that you're going to start to decide if you choose a job that's higher paid, that might not be so artistically fulfilling, or you'll go to the other side of the spectrum where you won't be paid as much, but it'll be so much more artistically fulfilling. And what I wanted to ask you was that at the start of ARIA, were you choosing shows that had a higher chance of return over something that was more risky and artistically fulfilling? I couldn't. Basically, I fell in that in that bracket of never you know like it not being really that commercially viable for many right. years because right. i i was i was trapped in that territory because i wasn't ready to raise investment for for larger scale musicals like the adam Swami tour or west mm-hmm. end production right at the same time i didn't have um the commercial prowess or ambition to get those sorts of titles so i always wanted to do something for the first time that's all i ever wanted it's always been my focus and my how I've chosen a title. And that's why the Hope Mill thing was such a great point in my career because mm. I could do that up north and every show was unique because they haven't seen any of them. But um, the thing is, is that 
uh, I also started to learn that commercial musicals were mainly coming from the US to England. Mm -hmm. And if they were already successful, like Wicked, Hamilton, Kinky Boots, whatever, Dear Evan Mm -hmm. Hansen, number one, they're going to come to the UK. And number two, they're not going to need another producer like me on it. Right, right. Even though they'll make me loads of money, I'm not, I wasn't interested. I don't want to write a check for a show already made. For me, that's not what my producing career is. And some people are money raisers and, and they do come in on projects and they've got great skill and they make things happen and they deserve all the praise. But that wasn't the type of producer I was. I wanted to be like, like your Kevin McCullums and your Jeffrey Sellers and your Daryl Ross and your Sonia Freemans and your, you know, I wanted to be the person at the helm that's, picked it up from the very beginning and made it what it is. Um, So I needed to do this groundwork. And unfortunately, every single show at that level is a non-starter. You're doing shows with 200 seats, 100 seats. Like there's not one show that's more successful than another. I mean, I say that now I have much more awareness of like what might do well on even on the stand scene. And I come up with the model now where I at least try and make a, some sort of small provision for myself to earn a fee because I've got costs now for my company and I don't mm. have another job as a vocal coach. So I have to be able to pay me and another two people. So I have to earn from my shows. And right. last five years originally could have been a commercial model because four band, two actors, three crew, that can make money with 220 seats selling out at £30 a ticket across six weeks. You know, that could make mm-hmm. a profit. It just didn't because it's shut you know and I want to do less of those types of shows or if I do do those types of shows they have to be invested in a way that the investors understand that there will be a producer fee even if that means that they lose some money because I can't you know I will never abandon the off west end which is to be clear like unsubsidized we're talking about these are not non-for-profits where we've got like subsidy or funding you know if, if it is going to be subsidized it probably is an investor that's going to go all right, I'll get 50% back this first time because maybe this has got legs. Sometimes. Right. That's what happened at Hope Mill the whole time because it was so small and our shows were so big. Right. Um, and we signed union agreements. We were paying better than a lot of other places and absolutely as we should, but that makes the budgets higher. End of story, you know? It's not a place. But, you know, we, we said to the investors, look, the theatre aren't taking a rent. I'm not taking a producer fee. So you know that your money is really being looked after. We put our time on the line. You put your money on the line. And that's kind of how it's going to work. And I couldn't justify why they should lose all their money and I should earn. So a lot of times I wouldn't earn. And it would be one other side project, a GM project that would bring me in a bit of money that I had to do. Or I was living off the reserves that Adam's family made because it was reasonably successful to the point where there's a little bit of money left. Right. so I could survive but that the the economic model to survive is to continue to produce work that brings you in an income and I don't just mean it made a profit I mean the producer needs to earn a salary like an actor otherwise how can you do it (laughs) when you're at the start of your career how do you find funding like I know that there's the Arts Council England but like I'm assuming private investors played a huge role at the start like they must have oh no I mean No, I had to self-fund a lot of my shows, which I did as teaching money or some of the money as an MD. The budgets were smaller at the beginning, the first year or two. And if, like when I did the Toxic Avenger at Southwark Playhouse, I needed, I think, £40,000 to do it, which is why, again, in the UK, you can start a career easier than in the US because no one could do anything for £40,000 in the US. But um, ultimately, that was the money I needed up front. So... I was like, I'll put in a third, like myself, quarter, I can't remember what it was. Mm-hmm. And then that's it. That was my limit. That was the maximum I could put in a show. And at that point, I find, you know, rather than trying to find investors, I found other people that wanted to join an ARIA show that was cool, like Toxic Avenger, and put in another 10 grand to have their name on the poster. And they weren't just a name on the poster. They actively helped and they but they didn't necessarily build the project or find the director title venue budget, whatever I was general and doing all that, making those creative decisions with their consultation and partnership. And I found some good people and that's how I capitalize slightly bigger shows. 
And then I took a couple of my own risks on these sort of review shows I would do in like the North London, which would be kind of, I'm Jewish, so I created these Jewish review shows, which a lot of the Jewish community would come to. And right. they're quite reliable when it comes to a show celebrating yeah. Sophie Tucker or Zero <laughs> or Fanny Bryce. And they and, love the theatre too, so, right? Yeah, and you do a little theatre in North London and these shows were quite cheap and we'd make money and put a bit more money in our area. And, but I'm not going to lie, like, it was small, slim pickings, you know, like, we weren't ever left with much money. We would recycle the same money, and if we lost something in a show, we'd make it back up with the Jewish show, and it would just do this the whole time, up and down, until, and then I was still teaching, and that's how I paid the rent and stuff. And then um, uh, there was one point where I think I lost everything that was in the bank account at one point. I was like, oh, God, how do I produce my next show? Then... uh, I met someone who's like, oh, you're looking for an investor. Here's my card. And then I'd say to them, oh, do you know anybody else? And they'd go, oh, yes, you should have dinner with them. And we're talking, this is talking like five years of this. You know? well, of course, oh, yeah, but you have to build up a repertoire, don't you? Yeah, and I'm trying to think of like the first show I really raised money for. It started probably with the, with Adam's family. So up until that point, every other show had been financed by me and one or two other producers with our own finance. And then uh, I, I actually, um, a lovely guy who sadly is no longer with us, he was an actor that um, had, had, had um, actually, just because it's just thinking about my first investor, he, he was poorly and he had to stop performing because he couldn't dance anymore because he was able. And he said, oh, I'd like to be involved with theatre in some way. Could I, could I invest in in a show of yours? Um, and that he was one of my first like small investors, and I just brought him in on a couple of projects for fun for him and for me. And then obviously I got the rights to the Adams family, and I had to sort of know that I could raise a significant sum of money by that point. But I also thought, you know, sometimes it's easier to raise three hundred thousand than it is three thousand. You know, Adam's Family was a really important turning point because I needed a big title. And right. unlike the shows I mentioned earlier, it wasn't a license that people want. Like, people didn't, no one had it. So no. there's an opportunity for me to get it. So at the start of your career, what producers were you contacting? I know you said you like Sonia Friedman. So what, were you in contact with her? I've met her once. We, I won the award, and that was like my prize to meet oh, Sonia. Right. Um, I tend to not knock on the doors until I've got really something to ask when it comes to the UK. So at the very beginning, I didn't really ask anybody. I just sort of went for it. I didn't have that commercial sort of, I wanted, I wanted it, but I wasn't so hungry for the West End. I was just hungry to make theatre. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad actually, because that kept me focused on just what I needed to, because I wasn't ready for the big wide world of West End. And, and because I didn't want to do plays and I didn't want to, just jump on someone else's show as a producer position for raising money. I had to make my own destiny and I had to build from nothing up to a point where I could do what I'm doing now, but on a bigger level. And that continued to give me pressure because I need to find, you know, new musicals to sort of do that with and to sort of make the next Hades Towns and Roots and whatever, you know, good chamber shows. Uncomfortable ways, got a dream to develop a show like that from scratch. You know, so, um, but then every now and then I would check in with people like Michael Harrison. He's a great producer here and, you know, and Sonia. And of course, everybody spoke to Bill Kenry and uh, like Kenny Wax, who were brilliant. And, you know, Ellen and Lloyd and people, no, everybody kind of knows each other. And if you need help, it's amazing how many people are willing to help you. And people aren't known for musical revival. They're known for being the producer that found In the Heights. That's right. <laughs> Or being the producer that uh, created the Harry Potter play. Sonia Freeman is unique because she does do a huge volume on Broadway in the West End and some are revivals and some are musicals. And, mm-hmm. and just her volume is so unique. There's nobody like her that has such creative prowess and relationships with all the theatres and the finance and the backers to do it and do it so, so often. Mm-hmm. So she's working on so many projects, but probably not leading on the development of loads of new musicals because she's much more in tune to plays and that's her real passion and stuff. So you have a bit more flexibility there because if you're Sonia, you have a relationship with strong venues that like 
say, oh, I've developed this with you and you put a bit of money in and we do and then it can move to the West End and then if you know the West End theatre owners, you've got a theatre lined up and then you've got the star and then the best writers answer the phone to you. And so, but gosh, it's not easy to go, you know, if, if you say to someone like Sonia Freeman, you, the, world, you, the world's at your feet, you can do anything you want, you've got the money, you've got the stars, you still have to be really good at what you do because... When you've, when, when you've got infinite choice, you've got to refine those choices and you've got to drive a real artistic vision for your company because of course. Um, you could do the wrong things. So yeah, you well, win. you can have all the money in the world, but if you don't have the idea or the people yeah, behind exactly. it, it doesn't match up. And the same thing is if you have the great idea, then you don't have, and you don't have the money, then it doesn't really... The execution, you know, it is, it is important to have the money and it is important to have good people that execute well and venues to, to introduce shows to market, but me, none of them really just premiere a new musical in the West End. It's just not done. It's just not. So we talked about you trying to find the next Hamilton come from away, Dear Evan Hansen. So when you created From Page to Stage in 2013, was that an opportunity for you to get writers to come to you and go, well, I might be able to find the next diamond in the rough? Totally. And I also wanted to make sure that when someone did come out that was great, they'd know where to go and they'd know where to do by some by having a, um, a platform. And again, trying to build my name, my reputation by being brave and doing something bold. Um, and yeah, and, and also being aware that there wasn't many opportunities for new writers. So we've um, used a literary manager to sort of assess new work. Mm-hmm. And to take more of a backseat role and not just produce three weeks of new writing because we've got three weeks in a theatre, but produce, produce write new writing when um, we found something that's really worth putting on and developing. And what do you find, what do you look for when you get new work? Because it says here that you read and listened to 150 submissions before selecting shows for 2018. So like, what are you looking for with that much volume? Well, like, yeah, I look first at like the subject matter. Now I'm like I said to you before, the music is the draw. It still is, and I ask for three demos first. So I look at the musical language. Is this good but emulating things I've heard before? Is this challenging? Is this contemporary? Is this avant-garde? Is it melodic? Is it accessible? Is it commercial? Is it not? That doesn't mean yes or no. It's just like as in if it's not commercial, we won't do it. I just I'm all these things. Um, what is the subject matter? Does it feel interesting? Does it feel topical? Does it feel intriguing? Does it make me think I've never seen anything like that before? Is it bold? Is it brave? Can I, I just, I am, I'm now I'm really like, who wants to see this? Do I want to see it? Could I imagine this building an audience? Could I imagine this on the stage? All of those things. If you're going to send me a Jane Austen musical, then I probably don't want to hear a legit sort of pretty musical because I'm like, that just feels nothing wrong with it but it does it feel like out of the out of the ordinary you know i need i think everything now that's taking off is bold and courageous and and executed really well and it's quite thrilling to see even in the u.s who are the leaders of this the innovation we've seen in musical scores and themes in the last five to ten years is huge and we've seen many new shows have commercial success in the last few years which isn't seen you don't have you know, original musicals from Hamilton to Hades Town to Band's Visit to Waitress to um, uh, Natasha Pierre, Come From Way, Dear Evan Hansen. You don't see so many do well in a small period of time, actually, because they don't, they, you know, they don't all necessarily survive. And when you look back at sort of Broadway and you go, oh, Rent changed history and then Spring Awakening sort of changed the voice again, we're seeing the voice change quite quickly. We're seeing pop contemporary music in theatre and we're seeing this new sound world in the Hades towns. We're seeing this stunning, I think the best thing about Come From Away, for instance, yes, it's all beautiful. It's all good. It's all well-written, but just the idea of, of how they tell the story is so brilliant. It's like this song through play, you know, it's so the execution of the story through multi-rolling is so brilliantly done. The book is really the most genius part of it for me. I'd like to hear your opinion on what you think about so many American musicals coming across the pond, like the Dear Evan Hansen's, the Waitresses, the Come From Away's, the Hamilton. As a producer of new British musicals, do you think this is a good thing or a bad thing for you personally? It's a hard one. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing because I really think it's important for British audiences to be enthused for the genre 
and to be seeing new voices and taking a leap of faith on things that are new. And gosh, they don't all do as well here as they do for you guys. You know, um, I don't know the figures on things like Waitress and Kinky Boots, but, I, you know, Waitress didn't last long here as it did in the US. Um, so it's not a slam dunk, but at the same time, it's it's enriching our audiences. It's It's showing them... Um, and I don't think the audiences go, oh, it's an American musical. I think they just go, oh, it's a musical and it was on Broadway or you don't necessarily think deep enough. I just want audiences to go and see something new that happens to be a musical in a theatre. Because in our audiences, we'll go and see a new play at the National or at the Hampstead or at the Royal Court, these subscription type houses that have a following. But I need to see the musicals taking off in the same way. Okay, so we're going to play a game called Radio Play, which is a bit of a questionnaire to get to know you more, Katie, rather than you, Katie, the producer. Sound good? Yeah. Let's play Radio Play. Right, so what time do you wake up in the morning? Between seven and eight. Radio or music? Music. Favorite lyric from a music theater song? Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> I know, that's like, the, that's like the worst one to ask someone oh, who's passionate. lyric? <laughs> Oh my god, um, this is so bad. It's so hard. That's a hard one. Okay, okay, we're coming back to it. Uh, current favorite song? In a musical? Nope, doesn't, it can be anything. Uh, oh my god, I'm so bad at this. No, current it's okay. Favorite song? Um, oh, um, it's called You, I think, by, is it called You? It's an Annie Lennox song, and, um, I can't remember the name, but it's on her Mass Destruction album. Um, Unlimited budget. What show are you producing? Unlimited budget. Oh, uh, one day I'm going to do Rent. Oh, yeah. Classic. Cabaret. Anavita. Oh, love that. <laughs> okay, oat milk or almond milk? Neither. Normal milk. Oh, no? What? What do you put? Do you yeah. not drink coffee? No. Oh, my God, tea. No, I said normal milk. Oh, Is normal milk. Yeah, I'm yeah. like sitting here. I'm like... God, there's so many goddamn milks now. It's like you can like squeeze a curtain and they'll sell it to you. Okay, yeah. most famous person you've ever met? Uh, probably Angelo Weber. Oh, I mean, hey, he's worth a couple know, billion. I've met, I've met Lin Manuel as well. Oh, okay, both are worth a couple million a uh, couple million dollars, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Most famous person you have in your phone? Tim Rice. Oh, we'll take it. We'll take it. Okay. Uh, a performance you wish you could relive again? That night with Stephen Schwartz, an evening with Stephen Schwartz at the theatre. Okay, biggest pet peeve? Uh, people, um, people like working so hard to, to, to get a, to get a job and then like not really enjoying the experience or sort of not looking like they kind of want to be there. Uh, last book you read? Um, I read this book. What they didn't teach you at Harvard. What they can't teach you at Harvard Business School. Oh, that sounds really interesting. <laughs> uh, cool. A piece of art that changed your life. Oh gosh, theater. I mean, literally from the, the first show I saw, probably was either Les Mis or Beauty and the Beast. Underrated probably musical. Like, underrated musical. Oh, oh. Uh, I think that. Like the piazza, I don't know. Is it underrated? It is good. I mean, much, tell I a composer it. to play the beauty is, and they might might oh. think differently. <laughs> boop, 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 boop. Uh, okay, uh, guilty pleasure. Chocolate. You knew that. I knew that. Yeah, I, I shouldn't ask that one. I kind of already knew the answer. Okay, if you could travel back in time, what period would you go to? Oh my gosh, forties. Uh, you have to delete one: Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Oh, it's hard. Oh, Instagram I joined last, but it's it's less intrusive. But I do hate the direct message feature. I'd probably say that, but I do think Twitter's the most dangerous. Ooh, I love Twitter. That's my favorite one. Dangerous, as in like it's to it's a bit of a toxic thing. So I think I from know. that from that basis, it would be Twitter. But I think I would miss Twitter more than Instagram if I got rid of it. If there's a spider in your house, do you kill it or set it free? Oh, I don't kill anything. Um, I might not be able to set it free. I might find someone else to do that. Okay, should award shows exist? Hmm, award shows? Mm -hmm. So like uh, the Tonys, the Olivier's, do you think that should exist? I 
do think it's nice to celebrate, but we're getting into some, re- there's some, there's a lot of things wrong with them. There's a lot of things that don't, you know, are fractured and need to be re-looked at. Right. In terms of categories missing, how are they, how are they eligible? Or is it the same people? You know, like, but, but I do think we should celebrate, uh, celebrate our business in certain ways. Um, if you were given the opportunity, last one, if you were given the opportunity to fly into space given today's technology, would you do it? Even if you knew you were 100% safe, like you were going to come back no matter what? Yeah, I was safe. But you don't know you're ever safe. I know. Yeah, I'm talking to you as someone that takes risks all the time. Also, the lyric that you asked, it has to be, I'm still here, follies, done. Oh, done. That's the way to end it. All right, that's radio play. Tell us about your journey with Rags, because did you see an opportunity as something like from a prolific composer that was created that wasn't commercially known and you kind of said to yourself, this could be something? It was always on my radar. In fact, my friend who I started the first theatre company with, again, he liked rare musicals and he was Jewish and he bought the CD. I never told, I think I I didn't tell Stephen the full story. He bought the CD from a charity shop for... 99p, I think. Right. He said, and we loved Judy Kuhn. We loved her voice, you know, the actress. And she was Bella. And Giles was like, oh my God, Judy Kuhn was in this flop musical. Have you heard of it? Rags. And I was like, no, but the drama school that I'm at, you know, because I, I went to the London, they have the songbook in the library. I'm going to have a look at it. Anyway, um, I, that was it. My love affair with Rags began. And when I was starting to produce and I was getting closer to some of the agents like I was having you know meetings with MTI and RNH and all of them that with Bert Fink who'd just come over from America to join RNH where it was licensed and I said Bert I want to do rags that's the next show I want to do he's like oh, I think the writers are working on it I'm not sure it's available let me see and at that time Stephen was like no he was like the ringing like the, you know driving the project um I'm not sure that, you know, we're ready for production in England, but thanks for Katie's interest. And I went back, I was like, no, no, I have to do it. Is there any way we could do anything? Even if we just showcase the music, I'm obsessed with it. I can't get it out of my head. When I get here, I can't let it go. So um, basically, uh, Stephen agreed to let us do a concert. So I did a concert of Rags, I don't know if you know, in 2013, I think. Yeah, you've done it three times, right? Yeah. So... It was a concert, and then what happened then? I went and invited Stephen to Pippin, and Pippin, he was there with Winnie, who wrote Wicked with him. They were here for some Wicked. He came, it was, we went for dinner, and I said, oh, Stephen, I'm the girl that's obsessed with rags. I'm the producer of Pippin as well. And he was like, oh, and I could see he was interested. He was like, we are revisiting it now. and we're re-, You know, for authors, they want to see things on the stage. It helps them, like, finish it, like, finally finish it. And I, I just think, oh my God, Stephen Schwartz is interested in working on rags with us. Whoa, I can't pass up that opportunity. You have to do it, yeah. He said to me, oh, are you in New York anytime soon? I think, uh, and I was like, yes. He was like, well, in Goodspeed Opera House in Connecticut, mm-hmm. you know, you should go and see it. They're going to do a revival. We've been working on the book. So I went there. When I was in New York, I took the train, went to see it had some reservations about some of it wasn't you know it was very good but it wasn't there was some you know I knew my production wouldn't be the same this is a beautiful like like old-fashioned little cute theatre where Annie mm-hmm. started yeah. and it was end on and, and it quite traditional in its setup and I knew that mine would be more like immersive in a way because the audience would be so close to everything and so Stephen came over and I said look I went to visit him in in New York and said I'll do it. And I met Charles Strauss's, you know, manager and spoke to David Thompson, who I already knew because he'd done the book for Bar Mitzvah Boy, another Julie Stein musical that was kind of like a bit of a forgotten classic. Right. That I, I had done. You guys did that too, didn't you? Yeah. So David Thompson yeah. had done the book, which he'd also mm-hmm. done rags. So mm-hmm. I knew him and I told Stephen a few things I felt were missing and were ashamed that they were cut from like the new version. And he, like, okay, I'll, th- I'll have a think about them. And then I told him about this director that I thought should direct. And he had a chat with her and they got on. And he liked the idea of a female director. He'd never had a female director ever, the show. And 
yeah, and that was it. And and then he was so lovely to work with. And in Manchester, you know, we had a set budget for £5,000. It was, you know, small, but for everything that the show needed, it was perfect because the show didn't need money thrown at it. It needed vision. It needed stripped back. You know, the director had like 20 suitcases, a couple of wash lines, a New York skyline made out of cases, a gauze and like a couple of tables and chairs and a nice floor with the, with a, with this, with the um, American flag on it washed out. You know, it was very sort of stylized. Stephen was like, I'm not being funny. I didn't expect this. As in like, I didn't think he, I didn't know. I didn't know the quality you could get out of London and not that I doubted you as a producer, but I'm extremely like impressed with the quality of the actors. So you had mentioned that you gave Stephen, a few of your thoughts. Now, what is that process like and how do you navigate that relationship when you're working with a composer or a writer and such a prolific one like Stephen as well? I was nervous at first because you're dealing with someone that's incredibly successful and incredibly well-versed in musicals. Like, he's a very generous man. Like, he gives a lot of his time to young writers. But at the same time, I thought, I'm his producer and surely he cares what my opinion is because I've got an opinion. And I didn't have masses, masses, masses of notes. You have to understand that this is a show that's kind of like being recycled. You're dealing with a, an author that's no longer here, Joseph Stein, and a book and an amazing idea he had. You've got Charles Charles, who's probably not actively writing new songs for the show. You've got a whole back catalogue of songs that weren't in the show that could be like rewritten. You've got Stephen working with a new book writer to create more chamber musical than an opera, because Rags was quite big and operatic in its first incarnation, which I watched at Lincoln Centre. I went to go and watch the VHS so I could see what it was like. I mean, I still think that original overture is one of the best overtures ever written. So it's a shame it doesn't exist anymore because no one needs that in this new type of contemporary version. No one needs a big orchestral overture. Um, that doesn't suit the show anymore, even though it's glorious. So I had a few few questions about uh, Rebecca Hirschgewitz, like, again, not going into too much detail, just about the leading character, the secondary characters, the Yiddish theatre, um, rebalancing some of the duet of the song Rags because it used to be a song for the secondary character and yet it's the title number. And I think when they redid it, they gave it all to the lit main girl and it's like, you've taken too much away from the secondary character. Um, yeah. I, mean, I didn't go back with like a whole list of notes, but I sort of told him what I loved about it and what I didn't love, what I didn't love. And I said to him, I was really excited to do it in a theatre space that was a bit more immersive. And I felt that, you know, at Goodspeed, it's such a small stage. It's quite shallow and you can't, like, there's no depth. You can't play with shadow and and, and gauzes and create texture in the, in the way we could have done at the Hope Mill. And then Stephen was very excited about its potential for London. So I said, I'll work on a plan. And I found a couple of backers and we came to the park which was so for- fortunate that we got that slot because the park's a very well-run theatre with a very strong audience and, and a lot of Jewish audience and a beautiful space, very, like, it's kind of a newish theatre. It's an independent theatre, so you do hire it um, and you don't get to, like, be programmed there and sort of, like, sit back. You have to do, you're just hiring it. But it's very well curated, you know, they choose the shows. And Stephen came to see the space and he was just, like, oh my God, blown away. He was like, I'm so happy that we're going here. It was a very different orientation to Hope Mill. Like Hope Mill's very long and narrow. You've got great depth. So when you're sat in the audience, you see the New York skyline so brilliantly. At the park, we couldn't quite get that perspective because it was a shallow stage, but quite wide. So but we were able to use height because it's very tall, but, you know, to, to sort of get some levels. And it was glorious. I mean, I have to say, like, I've never been so nervous. I literally decided um, after there was availability issues with some of the cast, we had to cast the whole show again. And I was very sad to lose the girl that played the main part because she's such a stunning performer. And oh, and then we found this other girl who was just incredible as well. Very different. They were both very different. And Stephen adored both of them actually. And both productions but as a whole I think London took us to another level um because just it just I don't know 
The response was amazing. And Stephen brought very influential people to see the show, like, you know, Stephen Dolge. Like, yeah, nice to me, nice with the director, got to meet his son Scott, you know, people, it, yeah, it's good. It, it, it was a very, I have to say it's a career highlight, not just because I got to it with him, but rags, just rags, just doing that show as a Jewish person about immigrant story to New York from Russia and wherever and knowing what that means, what those words mean. And, and at this time in the world, what it means seeing Children of the Wind. So oh, it, I honestly love that production. It sounds so, like that's one of your favorites. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. Like, yeah. It's so interesting when you, when you perform, when you do something that's so close to your heart, it just does bring out something. Like you can be doing a show with a million dollar set wearing a $17,000 costume and it's like the substance just isn't there artistically. But then you go and do a show in a $3,000 set and like a smaller audience and it's like, I could do this for the rest of my life. It's so interesting how that works. Yeah, I mean, you were saying that earlier, actors have to make that decision whether they do a takeover role in a show for a year's contract at £1,000 a week, which they will probably love, um, or they go in that new musical that becomes The Next Ordinary Days by Adam Guan or whatever, and they the role and get paid £350 a week, but they're mm-hmm. going, it's only a six-week contract. I would do this for the rest of my life if I could. When it comes to, I guess... When you do a show like that with Stephen Schwartz and you do something that's like so successful, is that what keeps investors coming back to you? Like, how do you keep them coming back to go coming back to Aria Entertainment? Well, that it was kind of like every show is different. You know, something like Wax, there were people that wanted to be involved with it and wanted their name on involved with it because they were passionate about the show and Stephen. It was very hard to make money. Like, it needed to sell 98% to make all its money back. My I God. Think we did play to 89%. So that's said, not bad. I said to these people, I reckon that you have a chance of making some money back, but you, you could lose some, but I guarantee you, if you do lose, it probably won't be a lot. And I says, I know that sounds crazy because you throw your money away, but believe me, that's how I built my career by investing my own money. So you want to be part of this experience. That's what this is at this point. And maybe the show will move to the West End or maybe it will go to America and actually we got the cast recording out of it um basically Stephen did I said to Stephen the show can't make any money so can we do a night with you to make money for the show like Ray I'll do the night you charge 50 pounds because people pay 50 pounds to see Stephen Schwartz talking close and personal with them and hearing Alice Fern sing Defying Gravity which blew the roof off literally this that I had couple of alphabets and some other brilliant actors that have been in shows of mine right. uh, perform. And, and so the audience got a concert and they got to meet Steven. So yeah, it, that, that's worth the price of admission alone. In my opinion, I had my, my, um, that was probably my, one of my most enjoyable moments of my life that night. Wow. So we have a bit of time left in the UK. There's a lot of shows that have top billing stars like Imelda Staunton was in Gypsy. I did a show, a uh, musical with Cheryl Ferguson from EastEnders. Um, David Hasselhoff seems to be in any panto that will accept him. So like, how much importance do you put on putting a name in your show? Um, sadly, when you're doing the touring circuit, it's the venues that are like, who's in the show? And like, really? I'm, not ta- I'm not taking your show unless you tell me who's in your show. And that depends. They wouldn't ask who's in the show of The Lion King or Les Mis or Hairspray or anything. Well, Hairspray maybe, but these shows that have reputations, they don't really care. But if you are going to do, yeah, they ask, they ask. They want to know who's going to get on the sofas and um, market the show to the global audience. I never have been interested in that, which is why it's taking a lot longer for my commercial career to start because for me, the show's always been the star. I've always chosen a show because I love it, not gone, oh, here's a star that wants to be in a show. Let's find one for them. And that is commercial and producers do that and they're smart and they probably make more money than me. But that's just not what gets me up in the morning. And when I had a couple of names in the Adams family, for instance, they were all, I mean, yeah, well, she just can do it, you know? (laughs) Well, yeah, that's the thing. She's right for the part. She's as popular and can do it. Samantha Womack, you know, she played Morticia. She was a television star, but she was trained as a musical theatre performer. And 
you know, even if she was unknown, she, she would have got the part. She was that good. Right. You know? right so right. When you can find both. Um, it's great when you're compromising the show and not getting the best show. It's, it's tough. Good. Yeah, it's not good. I actually find that really respectable. You know, it's not just producers' faults. You know, we are we are being told we are creating. Sadly, the venues as well a false sense of expectation, and I think it has to stop. And I don't. I don't know. I mean, I think. I think less so with new musicals. Once something's a brand, no one cares what who's in Hamilton. Like I say, or the Lion mm-hmm. King. When you revive Hello Dolly. Who is Dolly? I mean, come on. It's like, you know, it is. They only have so long. They can only survive for so long. And our regional landscape is nothing like the US. We have no guarantees. Our audiences are not well-versed in musical theatre. Like you go to school in America and most high schools do a musical and everybody kind of knows 1770, whatever, you know. <laughs> so ultimately, we have to give audiences. We have to make sure that people are coming to the theatre. Mm-hmm. We also have to be mindful of the future. If we continue to give them these names, what's going to happen when we stop giving them these names? Sonia Friedman wrote in an open letter that 70% of theater companies will be out of business by the end of the year if there isn't further help for the sector. If you had business secretary Alok Sharma, culture secretary Oliver Dowden, and chancellor of Exchequer Rishi Sunak in a room, what would you tell them? Well, they just don't seem to understand anything about how our business works. They don't understand the amount of upfront capital needed they just go oh here's some subsidy go and deliver it and then they don't see the economic strength we give to the rest of the economy seven I mean, billion pounds you know exactly uh, they, they 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 don't i don't know i don't know who can teach them i don't know if anybody can see unless they're there unless they're part of it and actually even in our own industry there's a lot of lack of understanding of what mm-hmm. economics are for our business i definitely right. think Sadly, there is going to be very difficult conversations coming up over the next few months about union contracts and waiving contracts and overtime and trying to make it easier for producers to cancel weeks and actors feeling really hard done by and uh, for obvious reasons and fair reasons, but also a lack of understanding of the fact that if there isn't flexibility, then the producers will just be closing shows. Yeah, and then it just doesn't exist at all. Yeah, and it's like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think there's people out there that are doing a fantastic job in communicating to these people as best as possible um, what's going on and what they need to do. I right. think I just sort of try and say the same things, really, right. and speak passionately about um, we, we just need, we need to know more. We need to have a foresight into what the plan is so we can plan. No one wants to, to support the arts or fund the arts, but if you, the first thing they want to do in a global pandemic is go sit down and watch Netflix. Yeah, but they don't understand the economical difference between even the film and us, like no, as we, a TV studio and their, I'm not saying it's not hard, but like the live aspect of theatre and the live audience aspect, like that is the issue. And you, mm-hmm. yeah, you can't just pause a film shoot, but you certainly can't cancel a, a show, you know, every night. Now, in an article from the stage, you mentioned you had ambition for 75% of Aria's output to be new work rather than revivals by 2021. How do you plan on making that a reality? Well, it starts today. It starts today with me raising some money for an investment fund to develop shows and to start the process of getting those shows ready. You know, right. doing, you know, we've already got a couple and we've got the Sammy Davis Jr. project we've talked about and a couple of other undisclosed projects and we're constantly listening to new musicals. So that's the, that's the dream, but it just might be that by those years, we only do three shows in a year. Right. Two are new, you know, and one's a And we do shows, but bigger. Um, You know, less sort of like 10 revivals a year sort of thing. So something kind of like how you did at the start where you were like, I guarantee myself money by teaching these, these, these kids. But then I also am like, wait, I'm going to put on two new shows as well. So you're kind of guaranteeing you're a safety net here, but you're also doing something that could yeah, be successful there. Good analogy. Yeah. Okay. Last question. I promise. Last question. Cause I know we have one minute. Okay. Um, you said you would like to see more females within your role in the industry, particularly music theater producers. And if we don't see more of it, we're not going to see any change happen. Do you see Aria opening a producer's workshop similar to the one that you took early on in your career? Yeah, that could be really cool, actually. And I, re- and I actually now am asked by Joe Smith to do the investment module at stage one, the place that I went to when I was young. And um, 
that he thinks actually now I did it to fill in when someone cancelled last minute and he's like you know what it worked really well actually because some of these people haven't ever raised more than a small amount of money and your level of what you're doing and how you've built is kind of more organic uh, to them than say them speaking to someone of like Sonia's level not that she would do the chat she's too busy but someone that's raising millions rather than someone that's raising um had raised their first 30,000 and then 100,000 and then 200,000 and then I'm like yeah and I'd like to raise a million now and I wouldn't know where to do it so you know they um I do that and yeah I'm open to it I'm open to 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 doing a course in off West End producing and building that and I think it's, it's getting to a hard time because there's going to be hope well there will be a whole new generation of producers in the next five years that then they do Pippin and hair and start doing survivals but it's like where they're going to do these shows like what sort of venues because even then the venues are sort of changing what they're looking for and if they're going to program that and how can you produce these shows ethically when they're so big and it's kind of yeah things have changed a lot even mm. in 18 17 years I've been here and kind of like it's been interesting to see what happens over the next 20 years yeah the future seems bright though hope so Katie, you are so fantastic. You're such an inspiration to so many people globally, oh. as I said in the intro. Uh, that's a tuna, tuna sweet corn, by the way. Um, but I really, really appreciate you taking the time coming here, speaking about your journey, your lens on the matrix of what producing is. You're so great. And I really, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for a lovely interview. So happy that went well.